Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. And I think there's something rather uh, wonderful about playing a game together because you're actually sharing a space and exploring, in a way, each other's consciousness. It's a bit like a dance when you play a game with somebody. And just in the same way as we sat around the campfire telling stories as a way of sharing our inner worlds and exploring the inner worlds of the other. Um, I think is maybe one of the motivations for why games are so popular. That's Marcus Dusotoy, professor of the public understanding of science at Oxford University. He's a renowned mathematician. He's also an author, playwright, actor, TV presenter, trumpet player, and avid gamer. It's his passion for both the power and wonder of mathematics that underlies everything he does, including his latest book, Around the World in 80 Games. I'm really interested in talking with you today because I think mathematics is probably one of the most amazing discoveries of the human mind, and it left me out. (laughs) I can do arithmetic, and I love geometry. As I get into the higher reaches of algebra, I start to gain altitude to leave the atmosphere. And I'm not even in a low Earth orbit with trigonometry. So you're talking to somebody way, way on the outskirts of familiarity with what you've devoted your life to, but you've devoted your life also to communicating to people like me. So I'm fascinated to hear from you. Well, in a way, you see, I think um, mathematics is all about communication because for me it is primarily a language and it's a language that we've discovered, created to understand the universe around us. And I think that's what's so exciting, that whatever you're interested in, there probably is some mathematics lurking behind it. It seems to give you so much pleasure. Yeah. And a good example is your latest book, around the world in 80 games, because you do that same thing of applying your knowledge of mathematics to the simple, almost trivial-seeming thing of a game. I mean, I think everyone loves playing games for fun and enjoyment. And you know what? That actually motivates a lot of my mathematics. Um, Although my mathematics might ultimately lead to development of new technology or a deeper understanding of the universe you know what? That's not what actually motivates me. I love doing mathematics for the for the fun of it. For me, mathematics is a bit like a game. What I've enjoyed in this book is something that I've been passionate about for years, which is whenever I travel, and I travel a lot for my mathematics, um, is the country that I'm visiting, discovering what it is 
What's the game in that country that they love to play? And does that give me some insight into the culture that I'm visiting? And and I've really discovered that games really vary from one region to the other. So, for example, when I travel in India, uh, a place which has discovered wonderful mathematics, including the number zero, for example, um, they really enjoy games of chance. They enjoy giving their fate up to the roll of a dice. Mm. Um, for example, snakes and ladders or shoots and ladders, I think you call it in the US. That is a game that originated in India. Interestingly, it's a game which is helping people to to learn about uh, the impact of morals on your life. So if you're going up a ladder, it's a, you know, good karma. And if you're going down a snake, it's because you're being drunk and you're being sent back. So it's actually about a game capturing the idea of reaching nirvana, which is uh, beautiful. And then became simplified when it was brought by the English to, uh, you know, during colonial times and it became a kid's game. But actually it was a game for moral tuition. But then if you go to somewhere like China, China does not like giving themselves up to the roll of a dice. They like being in control. And so you see games like like Go and Chinese chess uh, and there's also a very competitive side to India, for example. That's where chess formed, which is a very aggressive game where you mm. take pieces off the board. It's a real battle, whilst Go is a, is a real territory game. It's still a kind of game of warfare, but this is a, a much kind of calmer, gradually controlling areas of land in the game. So, so it's been really fascinating uh, writing this book and doing the research over the many years that I spent traveling, sort of seeing the the culture reflected in the games that uh, the people play in those countries. What would be an example of a game reflecting a principle of mathematics? There are some very interesting modern games which really capture mathematical structures. For example, uh, we call it Dobble, but I think in the US you call it Spot It. These are 55 cards, uh, circular cards, where there are little icons on the cards. And if you put two cards down, there's always one icon in common with both cards. And the game is to kind of spot uh, which is the, is it the clown that's on both cards? Um, and this is a, a game my kids love to play. It's very simple again. Yet underneath this, to make this game, is actually a, a seven-dimensional structure made out of numbers modulo seven. Um, I mean, it's a beautiful... <laughs> Beautifully exotic piece of mathematics. Now, of course, you don't need to. Yeah, you don't need to know that. But it gives me a little bit of joy when I see my children playing this to realize actually they're navigating this, you know, wonderfully exotic geometry without knowing it at all. That's great. Well, why do we play games? I know there are a lot of theories about it. In some cases, relating us to other animals that play at fighting when they're pups. Do you think humans do that with that motivation too? I think maybe to begin with, there was a sense of a game is a safe environment in order to explore maybe a dangerous situation you might encounter. So pups, for example, will play fight in order to train themselves up for later adult fighting um, and and serious warfare. Um, So I think there's a sense in which uh, we've developed war games, for example, to uh, explore strategy. Um, but actually, I think that's 
probably a rather shallow assessment of why we play games. And and I think it might be more to do with uh, the emergence of consciousness in the human species. That consciousness, suddenly we had this internal inner world, our emotional world, and we started to wonder, you know, what is my fellow human in my group? Are they also feeling this? Are they are they experiencing pain, love in a similar way? And I think there's something rather uh, wonderful about playing a game together because you're actually sharing a space and exploring in a way each other's consciousness. It's a bit like a dance when you play a game with somebody. And just as in the same way as we sat around the campfire telling stories as a way of sharing our inner worlds and exploring the inner worlds of the other, I think playing games might also have played a similar function. But maybe we shouldn't be looking for utility, that this is actually about fun and enjoyment. And so now a game isn't about trying to uh, find some evolutionary uh, explanation for why we're playing Monopoly or or Bridge, um, but that actually we are reaching a stage where we have the space to do things that we enjoy doing rather than just having to work for the sake of work. So uh, we're, utopia, I think, will be the human species sitting around playing games whilst the artificial intelligence does all the hard work for us. (laughs) As long as it doesn't kill us. (laughs) Exactly. But maybe we should explore through a game how to stop that happening. (laughs) I'm interested in the idea you explored a minute ago about sitting down, two people sitting down at a game looking for ways to figure out what the other person is thinking. Whether that's how games began or not is something that we use games for now to test our ability to figure out what the other person is thinking and to train train ourselves better at it, which is important to me because I think that's the basis of communication, is being aware of whether or not your signal is reaching the radio you're aiming it at, which is the the listener. Yes, exactly. I think, you know, if you're playing especially a strategy game like chess, uh, you're constantly having to imagine yourself in the mind of the other. If I play this move, what might they do? What sort of style of play? Uh, Are they aggressive players? Are they very defensive players? So it really demands you to imagine being in the mind of the other and then responding yourself to to what that that means for your play so so i think it is a a, a wonderful space to explore that but then you know there's an interesting element as well where if you introduce chance into that uh that is also about uh, i think sort of understanding how to navigate the uncertainty of the universe not everything is um predictable and therefore to being able to be adaptable to to the roll of the dice being bad or, or good. Um, I think that's why I quite like games with a little bit of chance in them, that they they uh, they therefore aren't totally predictable because a strategy game can often be, you know, uh, somehow uh, doesn't allow a weak player, for example, to actually uh, compete against a strong player whilst... The game with some chance. You know, I think I start with backgammon as my first of the 80 games. And I think that has this perfect balance between having a roll of a dice, but what you do with those dice is absolutely, you know, that's the strategy. You can use the dice badly or well in order to beat your fellow player. 
But um, it's got that lovely blend, I think, of chance and strategy. And when you talk about games giving us the chance to play with the uncertainty of life, you make me think of a game I play against an iPad frequently. It's a solo version of the game, the card game Spite and Malice. Do you know Spite and Malice? I don't. I mean, uh, this is exciting. I, maybe I should expand <laughs> the book to uh, 160 games <laughs> and go around the world again. But, uh. <laughs> if you get addicted to Spite and Malice, you can write a whole book about that. It's a, a, a kind of two-handed solitaire where you try to dispose of your pile of cards first before the other person does. And you block them from getting rid of their cards, which is where the spite and malice oh, comes in. Oh, uh, yeah. So there's a certain amount of chance because you don't know how the cards are going to be distributed after you shuffle them. But there's, I think, as I've improved my playing of the game with the computer, that if I try to figure out what the probability of moving a card here or there is, I've doubled or tripled my ability to play. Absolutely. I think it's very important. that This is why card games, I think, uh, are one of the perfect places to understand this kind of role of, of chance and strategy because, you know, seeing which cards have gone is really important. So memory is an important part of playing card games. But then, because uh, that could really change the probability of, you know, what cards might come up, whether you can uh, capture a card if you're playing something like Bridge or the chances of collecting certain cards in a game like Rummy. So I think there's that ability to use probability and to assess, you know, where are you in the game? How many cards have gone? What have I seen? What is still there in the pack? Um, it is, you know, really important tools in playing card games. Uh, and it's actually, been, there's a lot of research I talk about in the book as well, uh, that card games are fantastic as we get to older age because they do demand us using our cognitive abilities, our memory. Mm. And that's why you find a lot of people playing Whist and Bridge uh, late into their lives and, and it really benefiting them uh, sort of mentally, uh, you know, retaining a facility with their brain because of the, the just playing these games. Well, I recommend Spite and Malice. I will. It's a, wonderful I, game. it's a wonderful game for a couple to play. My wife and I have played it for 40 or 50 years. And the name of the game, Spite and Malice, makes it possible for a couple to exhibit the worst emotions toward each other, but it's all confined to the uh, the card game. It's fascinating because one of the most recent innovations in making games uh, actually resulted because uh, there was a man who was enjoyed playing games with his wife, but unfortunately, you know, you do become very competitive and the wife basically gave up and said, I, I hate this. We have a miserable time playing games. And so he said, <laughs> he said, okay, well, okay, I'm going to invent a game where we work together. And he came up with this game called Pandemic, which is a game where the all the players work together almost against the game. So it's sort of a group against the game. And you try and beat mm. the game by uh, curing the virus, which is spreading through the game. And these collaborative games are actually quite a new uh, sort of venture in, in games, a new sort of discovery, where in the past, games are always about competition against another person. That sounds like moving forward toward better civilization. It reminds me of The Prisoner's Dilemma. The Prisoner's Dilemma is a nice one, but the other one I talk about is the ultimatum game, which is quite simple to explain. Um, it's where, you know, for example, 
uh, Alan, you might have a sum of money and then you've got to divide it between yourself and, and me and you're going to offer uh, a way to divide, say, $1,000. And then I can either accept your offer or reject it. But if I reject it, neither of us get any money. So what is your best strategy to get me to accept the bet? Um, so you might say, oh, okay, sounds fair thing would be 50-50, wouldn't it? And I would certainly accept that. And we both go away with 50-50. But then you think, oh, hold on. Actually, Marcus would probably be happy if he got anything, because otherwise, uh, you know, if he rejects it, he gets nothing. And so if I offer him a dollar, that's better than having no dollar. So actually, I'm just going to offer him a dollar and I'm going to keep the $999. And and surely that's actually called the Nash equilibrium, which is uh, the optimal kind of setting. But of course, psychology starts to come in here because I'm thinking, hey, hold on. I don't want to be shafted by Alan like this. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm only getting a dollar and he's keeping, and so I will reject the offer. I'd rather none of us got anything rather than you walking away with so much. So so when you play this game, an interesting element of psychology comes in, you know, at what stage will I actually feel like, oh, okay, I'd rather take this smaller sum than Alan's offered me and he's getting it quite a bit, but still I'm, it's enough to make me feel happy. So that element of happiness sort of, uh, you know, where is the sweet spot? And in the book, I sort of explain why actually something called the golden ratio, which is uh, a kind of ratio in mathematics, which often comes up in art and nature, sort of the perfect proportions, that um, the perfect offer for you, Alan, is that I will feel okay if um, the ratio of your money to the whole money is the same as the ratio of my money to your money. And this has been borne out in studies? Yeah, so exactly. They, they've they uh, done a lot of studies that just see how people think, what is the kind of threshold where people are prepared to accept the offer? Um, uh, and it's interesting, it, it does depend on, on countries. So some countries are much fairer. They will not do anything other than offer a 50-50 split. Um, other countries uh, will behave differently. If you're drunk, uh, you become a little bit more aggressive and want to keep more of it. Uh, <laughs> it, it seems like, yeah, So, the, but that sweet spot, the, the coming from the mathematics seems to really capture the ideal proportion that people will be happy to accept. It's funny, as we speak, two unions I belong to, the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild, are striking against the big companies. And I'm wondering if they're going to arrive at a formula that's similar to what you've just described. Well, I think that's why so many Nobel Prizes for economics have been awarded to game theorists, because uh, the game theory has so many implications for things beyond just games, uh, warfare, economics, uh, fair distribution of wealth in, in a democracy. Um, so I think that's uh, absolutely that using a game theorist in these kind of negotiations uh, is actually, uh, would be a very clever move um, because, you know, we can work out what the diff what the sort of perfect balance is that uh, makes everybody as happy as they can be within the rules of the game. When we come back from our break, Marcus Dussotoy tells me how Mozart composed a 16-bar waltz 
that can become billions of different pieces of music depending on the roll of a pair of dice. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. Complemented by an interior built with integrity, the Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Marcus Dussotoy. I'd like to hear more from you about how we should teach mathematics better than we do. How can you reach people who are long out of school or people just in school? How do you capture our attention? I think one of the big mistakes we make uh, with education, certainly post-11 years old, is to compartmentalise our subjects. So we think about going to the mathematics class, then the history class then the music class, then the art class. And my feeling is there are so many interconnections between these subjects and mathematics would so benefit from revealing how it is bubbling under all the other subjects that you do. And then to see people, there are people involved in this story. It's not some sort of abstract 
not a thing that's made to torture children at school. Um, so <laughs> it does a good job. <laughs> it does a good job, unfortunately. <laughs> so, so I think for me, that's what I always try to do with my books, and I think that's why I wrote this games book around the world in eighty games because everyone loves playing games. But then to see that there's some hidden game mathematics in playing Monopoly or Ticket to Ride or Settlers of Catan or uh, in Go and chess. I'm hoping this book, in a similar way, will make people go, oh, well, I love playing this game, but if I understand the maths, I might be better at playing the game, just in the same way as your card game. You, you've you understood that using a little bit of a probability will give you an edge in how to, to, to lay your cards down. You have an interest in things beyond math, and I get the impression you always have. So you, you have a bridge to us through these other interests, Music, writing, even acting. Do, do I do I get the impression that you you take part with actors in improvisation? Well, yes, I, I love theatre. I think it's a little bit like mathematics because very often, especially in something like an improvisation, you set up some very simple rules and then you let the actors uh, explore those rules and you see what emerges out of that and the good set of rules will create a wonderful improvisation. So actually one of the sections I talk about in the book is theatre games. What sort of games can help an actor to improvise and create something new? Because very often if you just give them a blank blank stage and say, go, nothing happens. You, you just kind of close down. But if you give them some simple rules to explore... Just like a game, those rules can give rise to a wonderful, complex interaction of the actors on stage. And interestingly, as you point out, something as free-flowing as an improvisation depends very much on rules. Writing a song lyric is tremendously dependent upon the rules. Yes. certain number of syllables with emphasis in the right place. And yet you can get beautiful heart-touching results if you follow the rules. Well, as Stravinsky said, um, I can only be highly creative under huge constraints. That mm. he, he wanted those constraints of kind of modern uh, 20th century uh, ideas of music coming from Schoenberg. Uh, he liked those set of rules because it pushed him into somewhere new that he would never ex- have explored if he just had to the freedom to do whatever he wanted. So... And you really surprised me when you talked about Mozart writing a 16-bar waltz using a dice game. Yes, yeah. How did that work? Yeah, this is, I think, shows the mastery of Mozart because what he did was um, to write 11 possible uh, bars for the first bar and then 11 possible bars for the second bar. And so 16 times 11 in total. But then which of the 11 you play on the first bar is determined by the roll of two dice, So, uh, which go from 2 to 12. Um, and so the mastery of Mozart is that whatever you roll, you might roll a 2 on the first dice, that will you do um, the the bar corresponding to the roll of two. Then the second bar will be maybe you'll throw a seven. Um, And whatever rolls of dice you do, if you play the piece of music, it makes musical sense. So there's... Amazing. It it is amazing. And it is the extraordinary uh, way that Mozart is able to, to put together these choices of bars that it doesn't matter what you choose, it still sounds musical and interesting. And, of course, 
the number of possible waltzes that you can make out of this game is so ridiculously large that if you roll a dice and play the piece, it's probably a world premiere of a Mozart waltz. So um, uh, <laughs> as I, I, I did a little roll of the dice. So in, in the book is a, you know, a, a, a brand new piece of Mozart that nobody has ever heard before. How many possibilities are there with his formula? Oh, uh, there are, um, I'm, it's a number I don't remember off the top of my head, so... Um, well, surely you can do it in your head. Oh, well, <laughs> yes, I mean, it is, in fact, 11 to the power 16. So, you know, you've got 11 choices <laughs> for the first. Uh, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. If you played them one after another, uh, we still wouldn't be anywhere, you know... Where, what have we been going? 13.8 billion years. We still wouldn't have gone through um, even a fraction, really. Well, we would have uh, certainly a fraction, but not a large fraction. Of our existence in the universe. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Did you start with an interest in math as a child, or, or, or did it grow out of your interest in everything around you? That's very interesting because, you see, at school, I I loved all of these things. I loved doing music. I learned the trumpets. Uh, I played in orchestras. I loved singing. I loved theatre. But I also fell in love with science when I first encountered it, you know, 11 and 12, just understanding how we can understand where the universe came from, what it's going to do next. And, and I was really in a dilemma because our education system often wants us to make choices and it was then that my teacher, when I was about 12 or 13, gave me a book called A Mathematician's Apology by G.H. Hardy. And he talked about mathematics as being a creative art, as well as being a useful science. But actually, the most important thing was that it was about being creative. And for me, this just really, I, I realised this is a bridge. I can be a scientist because mathematics is the language of scientists, yet I can also express my creative artistic side because mathematics gives you the room to create worlds that can never exist physically, yet you can mm. create in your mind. So, so I think my teacher was very clever in giving me that book, which made me realise mathematics is the subject which I can still carry on with all of my passions from from music to uh, theatre to games, as I explain in this new book, uh, right through to understanding science, because I do believe that, in a way, our universe is a physicalised piece of mathematics. That's why we see mathematics everywhere. Mathematics has always existed, didn't need a moment of creation, yet somehow our universe is an expression of a part of that mathematics. And that's why we always see mathematics sort of appearing when we're doing physics, chemistry, biology. It's right there at the bottom because, in a way, I think it's it's the spark which created everything else. That doesn't mean to say that we uh, are, there isn't a creative side to mathematics. And I think always when I make a new piece of mathematics, I feel that I've created it. Yet once it's there, I feel, oh, I, that was always there for me to discover. But I actually was part of bringing this thing alive for other sort of mathematicians and humans to experience. And maybe it's a bit like music. You know, the magic flute is a combination of notes, which I suppose theoretically existed for somebody to discover, but it still required Mozart to to choose that that particular combination. And I suppose as a mathematician, it's the choices that I make of the mathematics that I think is important that is, in a sense, the creative side of being a mathematician. And what you describe sounds a lot like 
what I've experienced writing, and I bet you have too, that you just happen to be there when you're struck by the next phrase. You've been the antenna somehow. You can't really say that you did it because it's a surprise. Yeah, that's when the, you get it. Absolutely. That surprise and that, you know, I I live for that moment, that aha moment when suddenly just things sort of come together. And I think you're right, you get that in mathematics in solving a puzzle or but also I think in something like writing where just the the kind of plot development or a particular sentence just somehow emerges from your subconscious. You know, I think our subconscious is trying lots of different possibilities out. And when something feels right, it kind of throws it up into our conscious mind. And that's why we suddenly have this, what feels like an aha moment. Um, I often feel like my brain is a pianist crashing away on the piano. Uh, It's all noise until suddenly a few chords emerge from that noise. and, And then that's the moment things are lifted up into my conscious mind. And I go, oh, now that looks good. That's the moment when I think my brain is chat GPT. (laughs) Well, you know what? I think it's very interesting because uh, as we see this new AI emerging, it's not so dissimilar that there is a sort of subconscious world that we don't understand quite how AI is making its decisions. And it isn't able to express the the rationale either because it's a hugely complex world that's going on in that code rather similar to our subconscious world and then something pops up and sometimes it's a load of rubbish but every now and again there's something quite (laughs) stimulating coming out of that AI. Well there's certainly something stimulating coming out of you and I'm so grateful to have spent this time with you today. Thank you so much. Meanwhile we end every show with seven quick questions. Well, I approve of seven. It's a prime number, so that's good. (laughs) That's our next conversation. (laughs) Okay, first question. Of all the things you could understand, what do you wish you really understood? Uh, uh, Can I have two things? Uh, One is... (laughs) You can have two, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, one is prime numbers, because that is the greatest mystery in mathematics. We do not understand... uh, how nature has chosen these numbers. So it's one of the greatest unsolved problems. Um, And the second one is my wife, who I still do not understand (laughs) after 30 years. And I think it's what fuels our relationship and uh, that we both don't understand each other. And so that is a mystery that I'm still trying to solve. Did you ever think that possibly each of you married a prime number? (laughs) Well, that's certainly, I think we might demonstrate characteristics of primes in the sense of their unpredictability. Okay, second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? That's interesting. I think that's one of the very powerful roles that mathematics can play in debate is um, maybe not about facts, but about how you're applying an argument and to find the the fault in that argument. So uh, very often I want to go back to what what are the kind of axioms that are fueling your your beliefs, for example, uh, and you know can we see that the, the the difference in our ideas is really because we have got two different axiomatic frameworks, which may come down then to facts and then we may have to to either uh, test them and see which one is, is faulty or, or not. But, you know, that mathematics, I think, can play a very powerful role in revealing um, faulty arguments. Next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, I was just in Colombia and somebody, you know, you get the very similar questions coming from audiences, but uh, this person says, what's about... 
most morally corrupt thing you've done in order to convince somebody of your argument. <laughs> like, What's whoa. the most morally corrupt? <laughs> yeah. Well, I won't tell you my answer. I mean, that'll be uh, I'll probably get well, arrested. What was, what, was, what was one of the slightly corrupt things you did? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> they're, all, they're all strange. Whatever, what's said in Medellin stays in Medellin, Alan. <laughs> Okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, I actually uh, quite like listening to people. Uh, so I'm not necessarily <laughs> sure I would actually stop them because I think one learns more from, from listening perhaps than necessarily uh, giving your own ideas. So uh, I quite like listening to what other people have to say. So let them carry on. Okay, you're at a dinner table sitting next to someone you don't know, never met before. How do you begin a genuine conversation? Yeah, I think that, you know, so many people just resort to the, so what do you do? Um, I, mm. I like just asking them what their passions are. I think that's, uh, you know, that's going to immediately ignite. Uh, if they're passionate about something, they're going to want to tell you about it. So, and I think that's often uh, the best way, and which may relate to what they do as their work, but um, uh, understanding somebody's passions, I think, is a really good insight into who somebody is. Okay, next to last. What gives you confidence? Hey, yes, I, I think one of the things that makes me confident is actually the power of proof in mathematics. And I think in a way, that's why I chose mathematics over the other sciences, because mathematical proof allows you to be confident about a discovery that you've made, and it will last the test of time. What the Greeks discovered 2,000 years ago is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago, yet the sciences, you cannot be as confident in your theory because a new discovery may totally overturn it. So for me, proof gives me confidence. You remind me of something I wanted to ask you about when we were talking about literature and music and that kind of thing. And you said that a mathematical proof is like a novel. In what way? Yes, I think because a mathematical proof is a journey. It's like it has a narrative to it. And a proof isn't just, uh, you know, a, a boring set of logical uh, consequences. Actually, a proof that I create, I want to move my audience. I want them to feel that moment of jeopardy where, you know, how are these thing, two things connected? It's a story that you're telling with logical argument, which sort of starts in a, a kind of safe place, takes you on a journey, a bit like uh, the Hobbit going on his journey, um, to, and then back to the Shire again, where we arrive at a safe place, our QED. But for me, the choices of mathematics I make are very much driven by uh, kind of ideas of narrative. And I, I've done events with novelists talking about this connection between why I think mathematical proofs have a, a, a very similar uh, sort of dynamic to, to the best uh, story narratives. I'm glad I asked you. Last question. I think you've already answered this. What book changed your life? You might think I was going to say uh, Mathematician's Apology, because it certainly did have a big impact. But actually, I'm going to choose... Herman Hesse's The Glass Speed Game, which is actually the last game in my Around the World in 80 Games. It's the 80th game. It's not a real game. It's a game that Herman Hesse wrote about, which is a game played by a sort of set of monks that come together. And the way you play this game is a fusion of kind of history, music, 
mathematics, science, uh, storytelling. And I think it's actually the game I've been trying to play all my life. I, I love what I do as a mathematician, but I want to see it connected to all of the other disciplines. So I think everything I do is sort of a move in this glass bead game that Hermann Hesse wrote about in his novel. Well, I can't thank you enough for sharing this with us in this short time we've had. I feel like I've got a glimpse into a whole life here. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure uh, sharing stories with you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Marcus Dussotoy is professor of the public understanding of science at Oxford University. A true polymath, he's not only won awards for his research in mathematics, but also for his several popular books on math. And that's just the beginning. He's also written and appeared in plays, written and presented a number of series on British television, staged a special performance in London's Royal Opera House exploring the mathematics of Mozart's opera The Magic Flute, and, of course, traveled around the world exploring games for his new book, Around the World in 80 Games. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio, Next in our series of conversations, I talk with David Brooks. His new book is How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. I have this dualism in the book. I say some people are diminishers and some people are illuminators. And diminishers aren't curious about people and they stereotype and they label. And one of the things that diminisher will do is called stacking. And that's if I know one thing about you, you supported Donald Trump. Then I proceed under the assumption that I know 8 million things about you. And that, that's stacking. And illuminators, on the other hand, make you feel lit up and, and warm. They're persistently curious about you. They want to know your backstory. And they make you feel great because they, they really warmly pay attention to the stories you tell about yourself. David Brooks and How to Know a Person. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>